Thank you for listening to the Crown Refs Podcast. The audio experience for basketball officials. Serve the game. When you give an answer back to a player or coach, you're also giving direction. Hey, coach, I looked at that player three, four times. I don't see any issues wrong with that play. I, I need you now to help me here and not question me at every time we walk we walk up and down the floor. That's what I mean about direction. You're tying off that piece of the conversation and now you're telling the player or coach, hey, I'm done with this, we need to move on. I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Crown Refs podcast. This is the FIBA edition because I'm bringing on FIBA basketball expert, Scott Butler. Scott, good to have you. How you doing? I'm good, man. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to catch up and, and, and make contact with people from around the world. I just got to tell you a quick story on how we connected. Um, this past June, I was at Roger Ayers camp and he had a great staff of clinicians, including Mr. Al Batista. So I see Al in the little conference room um, on Saturday morning. He comes up to me, you know, after we exchanged uh, niceties, he said, you know, you know, Paul, you know what, who would be a great guest for your podcast? I said, no, I, I don't. Tell me, enlighten me. I'm, li- I'm all ears. Because, you know, what he says goes, he goes, Scott Butler is a great officiating mind from FIBA. He, he works the NBL, and I think, Paul, he would be great. So I, I immediately wrote your name down. I said, thank you so much, Al. I believe you. You know, Al is the rules wizard over here in the States. So uh, I put your name on my podcast list, and, and that's how we connected here. So uh, appreciate having you on. Yeah, like I, I've spoken to her. I've spoken to Al a couple of times, and that impression is 100% spot on. <laughs> it's, it's perfect. perfect. Appreciate it, man. I've had a lot of reps uh, editing Al, listening to him. Uh, we've done three podcasts together, and you know I must have spent nine hours just listening to just him. So uh, I'm working on it, though. I, I, I'll get better over time. I think it's something I can develop into my better ones. But uh, thanks well, for that. Appreciate that. Well, let's, let's see how you go with the Aussie accent after this session. So just uh, for um, the audience to give them a little bit of context on you, you are a uh, NBL and FIBA referee. You worked over 500 games over the course of 22 seasons in the National Basketball League, which is the most popular league out in Australia. You were in 12 consecutive NBL Grand Final Series. You were four times referee of the year, which I think is really cool that uh, Australia picks a referee of the year. You are now the head of referees for the NBL. Um, NBL, of course, has teams across Australia and New Zealand. Just to give them a little bit more on your officiating career, you were a FIBA referee from 1997 until 2011, I believe. Um, You worked a number of World Cups, 2006, 2010, um, the Olympics. You're an Olympic referee. You worked in 2004 in Athens, 2008 in China. and you were uh, invited to referee in the NBA Summer League in uh, 2006. So quite an international resume, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thank you, Paul. It's, as we were saying earlier on, uh, I'm very fortunate to have a, have a successful career and a long career. Uh, a lot of people don't ever get that opportunity, but I'm, I'm very thankful for the time I've had on the floor. Uh, as we were talking offline, uh, for me, my career ended in 2012. Uh, I had a serious knee injury. The surgery uh, wasn't, wasn't successful. I came back for one season. I had a whole host of other issues you know, because of the, of the knee injury. And uh, for me, the best thing to do was do what was right for the game and, and retire. And, so, and that's what I did. Let's just double click down on that real quick and just talk to me about how it was um from a mindset perspective kind of you had a great officiating career you're still in your prime early 40s is like prime for officials um so how did you how were you able to overcome that time in your life i think that my my mindset at the time was really i had done everything i could to to fix the injury to go through the rehab process um you know, go see the right, the right doctors, get the right information, get the right expert input into how I would rehab and recover and use the right people to help me get, get the muscle, development back in place and, and run, you know, run correctly again. Once I realized that I had turned over every stone possible, 
to me it was it was a pretty simple decision to say that you know I, I can I, could I run a game yes but could I run the game the way I used to no I couldn't and at, at the top level at the elite level as we all know the the, the five percenters or the one percenters they all matter far too much sometimes so I for me knowing in my, in my own mind that I there may have been a chance that that one percent moment where I needed to to be in the right spot and my knee wasn't going to allow me that was the time and that was the realization for me that it's time to retire and did and you do, tra- do the right thing by the game yeah and did you transition immediately into a leadership role with the NBL no I, I stepped out of the game for uh, at the national level anyway for for about uh, for about 24 months okay. and uh, but at the at the lower levels I got re-engaged again uh, at our state level so back in you know in my hometown at the time um, all the state level programs and, and, and a little bit of junior development from time to time too so I spent two years just doing some work there and with uh, younger officials and and that was that was really interesting it's a it's a different type of education it's a different type of, of coaching you have to go back to go back to that grassroots approach Mm-hmm. Um, and then once that sort of two years, that distance had, had um, sort of ha- occurred, the MBL contacted me again and said, you want to get back into the program? I said, yeah, no, I, I can do that. So I helped with a, a bit of mentoring and referee coaching initially. And then, and then the MBL approached me about this job. I want to get into more of uh, what you're currently doing with the NBL, but let's rewind your story. Tell us what it was like growing up in Australia. I know it's a basketball crazed uh, continent. Um, so just, you know, what was it like being an official in Australia and how you were able to move up the FIBA ladder? Yeah, I grew up in, in, in regional Queensland. Um, Queensland is the state and it's, it's the northern part of the country. Um, very hot, very dry, hmm. you know, like temperatures that like in, in summer you wake up in the morning and it's already 35 degrees Celsius. Like it, it's, it's hot as hell. Um, which is like yeah. 116 yeah. Fahrenheit, my guess. Yeah, yeah, correct. It's it's <laughs> okay. it's in those regions. Like it's hot, uh, but it's a great place to grow up because it, it's a real sporting sporting place. You know, all of the you know basketballs played. All of our football codes are played there as well. So you know, you you go to work, you go to school, and the, the entire community is involved in sport. So I played like a lot of people. I I played, um, and then you know I was I was playing at a. Uh, at a junior age state level, and also officiating, you know, for just for pocket pocket money as well. And as it turned out, I was actually I was reasonably okay at officiating. And um, the good thing was, my my playing coach at the time said to me, "Do both for as long as you can until you have to make a choice." Uh, and and his view was that I shouldn't have to choose one or the other. And, and I think. You know that that stuck with me all these years because as as an as an adult trying to teach uh, you know, children and 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 teenagers is that you can you can give give children choice to, and they can make the the right decisions for themselves. You don't have to tell them what to do. Um, and I think that's a lesson for all adults when you go into child education or or coaching kids and or, or young athletes. So I kept playing for a long time and also refereeing for a long time. But then it got to this, got to this pinch point where I was starting to officiate the level that I was playing mm-hmm. and it, it became a, a bit of a conflict of interest. So I went to what we call a, a, a state junior championship and at the under 18 level, I just, just jumped straight to there. I missed all of the, the levels below that. And, um, and the, basically the, the state referee program identified me there and said we think you should you'll have a future and so I then chose officiating and and then went through the normal process of refereeing your junior games uh, we don't have a we don't have a college league like they do in parts of uh, of the states in Canada uh, we, we sort of jump from from junior age up to a up, up to a state men's program just to stop you real quick by junior age you mean high school yes correct okay. yeah, it's, not, all, not, it's all classified as junior like what from ninth Grade all the way up to twelve. Basically, yeah, the junior age would start from like under tens, uh, you know, nine years of age, and, and you you progress up to under tens, under twelves, under fourteens becomes and in Australia becomes the a national level re- recognition. So you, the various states play against each other at, at, a, at a state level, under sixteens, under eighteens, uh, and there's still an under twenty competition as well. 
Um, sometimes, you know, that competition can be really strong. Sometimes it's not as strong because the players end up going to college in the States or, or actually go straight to play professionally. So we progressed to that level and then we jumped straight to our, our, uh, our, our basically our, our adult programs, our, our senior men's and women's programs at a state level as well. So um, those programs here now are called NBL1, uh, which is like a, it's a feeder league to their feeder leagues to the NBL. Okay. And they're, play, they're played in each state. And they're, like, they're very strong competitions. They play in our winter, which is you know, your summer. And quite a few of the NBL players, you know, they fall back and play in those, those competitions if they're not going overseas. And clearly because of the, the COVID environment and not being able to travel, a lot of NBL players did play in the NBL one competition uh, this winter, just gone. And uh, it was a very, it's a very strong competition and it has been for a long time. So I then progressed through, you know, through that, that, that competition. And then, um, and then was identified for our national panel a national panel is just broadly the Women's National League and the Men's National League. And I was identified for a potential fever badge, so an international badge at that stage. So effectively from about the time I was then 19 and above, I was in that, in that talent pipeline for our, our national program. Hmm. And just talk to me a little bit about the Olympics. I know you were there in 04 and 08. I think the international competition was excellent back then because USA was struggling in 04. Um, or a few years before that, I think 04, 08, 08 was the year they kind of regained dominance, right? But um, yeah. what was it like reffing some of the great international players from the US and, and beyond? Yeah, it, it's an experience. And like when we first uh, started having discussions, Paul, you recall, I said to you that back in 2004, the Athens Olympics was still two person. Wow. So you had to ref you had to referee the the best athletes in the world, you know, men and women. You know, two person. That's that's they were a little late. They're a little late on that. Yeah, yeah. That was the last. That was the last major uh, senior tournament that was two person officiating. But <laughs> yeah, I can tell you that's that's really difficult to referee that stuff. You know, and uh, you, it's a great preparation though for those people who can still referee two person who want to eventually or still are refereeing three person. You, when you referee two-person, you know where the holes are on the floor. And that should help you in three-person officiating as well to some degree. So, yeah, Athens 2004, um, you know, there was, it was still a great uh, USA team. Uh, but this, but that, was the, that was the year when you know, the Argentinian team had, you know, Manu Ginobili and, uh, and all, all, of those, all of those guys. Louis Scola. Yeah, you know, like all, all the people that you've seen play in the NBA. Yeah, they were a big team. Um, the Greek team was was amazing as well. Mm. The Puerto Rican team was amazing too. And that the was the US year. a few years ago. Well, that was the year. That, that 2004 was when oh, okay. Puerto Rico beat, beat USA yeah, in, the, in, in, uh, in Athens at the Olympics. And a funny, an interesting story, maybe funny, maybe not for some people, but when uh, after that, that loss, USA then played Greece. And so you can imagine, you know, Greece playing at home, uh, you know, in, in the venue, it's just gone crazy, it's nuts. But eventually, the USA pull away. So the crowd, you know, they, they think they're funny. They start chanting Puerto Rico <laughs> in the background. You, know, you may have beaten us, but you, know, you lost to Puerto Rico. It's uh, The international environment is uh, very, very different from, from regular season. Jump forward to 2006, World Champs in Japan, another major tournament, you know, another crazy tournament. This time, Greece beat uh, Greece beat USA in the rounds, so uh, the USA can only play off for the bronze medal game, and they play Argentina. In, in the gold medal game was Greece and Spain, so the Greek team had guys like uh, 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 Baby Shaq that they refer to yeah. as, and those type of guys, you know, and Spanos and, and, and all, all those amazing players who, who still play in Euroleague. And then, you know, and then you go to the Spanish team and, you know, Ru Rubio, um, just so many great players, so many great players uh, in uh, Marcus Al, Pagas all those people. And, uh, and I actually worked the, the bronze medal game, which was USA and, and Argentina. And I can tell you uh, that game was, war sounds like, you know, an overstatement, but it was a war. 
you know, thankfully it was three person officiating because that made it just a little bit easier. But you know, that was a great game as well. You know, LeBron played in that game and Dwayne Wade was there. Um, amazing basketball. You know, great to see. Great to see both teams as well in terms of the spirit that they played. You know, there was no, there was nothing dirty. It was just hard, intense athletes. You know, going for it. Uh, 2008, um, the Olympics in Beijing. Again, great players everywhere. And this is where, obviously, where, where the USA then started to reassert their mm -hmm. dominance. You know, Kobe played, and uh, the gold medal game was was uh, Spain and USA. And again, that was another that was crazy, amazing, crazy game. game. I think anyone who wants to see a good example of international basketball, not only play physically, but play beautifully as well, that's the game I'd say go watch. That's the one I would watch. Incredible. Uh, I worked I, I worked for a women's bronze medal game um, at, at Beijing. Uh, but yeah, through the tournament, I did some really high-level European uh, games as well. 2010 was the, uh, the World Cup uh, in Turkey. Um, you know, we, I jokingly, uh, we had some of those games that we call refcular games, Serbia versus Croatia, <laughs> you know, these, these big ticket games where, you know, it's more than just a game. It's, you know, <laughs> it's about almost brothers fighting brothers. You know, it's, it's crazy stuff. And then, uh, and unfortunately that was my last international tournament because I, I injured myself and um, couldn't go back to London. Thanks for sharing that. And I appreciate you bringing back up baby Shaq. I would have forgot about him, but he's a, he's a pretty legendary uh, Olympian, uh, Olympic character, at least from my perspective, that was a great era. You know, you mentioned a lot of great names from the Spanish teams and Argentina teams. So I'm sure it was a lot of fun for you to ref. Yeah, it was. All right. I have a few notes here that uh, I took from our call offline and I'm just going to kind of run them off and uh, you could take it from there. I have, um, you were talking about the difference between the FIBA game versus the World Cup and the Olympics, specifically like the professional leagues, right? Versus the Olympics and World Cup. Why don't you elaborate on that? Yeah, the, the, the experience when you first jump into a particularly a senior men's and women's tournament at, at the at the World Cup and Olympic level, it's a little bit jarring because it's it's different in the sense that the players mean everything to the game. And they should mean everything to the game in normal circumstances. But you have to contextualize it in the sense that you've got a very short amount of time for the tournament to occur. And, and as an official, you have to be really mindful about how much you interfere in the game. So the things that you might do you know, in a regular season environment back in your own national league, where you've got you know, 20 rounds or 22 rounds of basketball across a 160 game regular season compared to you know, a very, very short window at, at the World Cup or the Olympics. So you can, you can establish a, a, a momentum and a cadence you know, back in a regular season, but you, know, you, you, can't, you can't do that same you can't have that same approach at a, at a World Cup or Olympics. Basically, every referee has to drop all of the nuances from your own federations. They have to be, they have to go. If you've got a particular way of calling something, you know, you've, you've got to shed that pretty quickly because every referee has to be on the same page you know, right from right from the get-go. Because otherwise, you're going to spend a day or, or two days trying to work out how the game is going to be called and everyone's settling into the same pattern. So typically what happens is at the World Cup and, and, and Olympics, the game is more physical. So the referees often, you often find yourself erring on the side of, you know, not making a call. Sounds you, like my you, type of game. Yeah, yeah. You tread this line between, between um, making sure that the game can be physical in, in, a, in a legal way versus... If anything's dirty, if someone uses an elbow or, or uses something sharp, you bang that up straight away. You say, we're not doing that tonight. That's not what we're allowing here. But you use your body and use your arms in the right way. You can be as physical as you need to be, you know, as long as you're not you know, fouling someone in, in the act of shooting those obvious things. So there's some of this, that's a real key difference. And the game often looks a lot physical when you watch an international game at, at those tournaments, you often see players and go, well, why are the referees calling that? 
let's cause the let's because of the of the philosophy at a at a very condensed window of basketball. You have to be careful about how much you interfere. Understood. Um, thanks for sharing and and kind of differentiating between those two games. I know there's some FIBA referees that are listening. I just want to go back to what you're saying between you know dirty and physical. How do you kind of find the difference when you were refing um, between physical play versus a dirty play? Some of the stuff we're doing now with our guys in, in the NBL is that we're making sure that if it if it looks like a basketball act then we're assessing the impact of the play. If it's not a basketball act, if someone uses their knee to maybe shift the, the post off, off the low block, you know, that's not necessarily a basketball play. So, or someone uses, as I said before, someone uses something sharp. They use their knee or they use their elbow to clear someone out. Those types of things, you know, they, they, they would be considered dirty plays or any, any play where, you know, there's contact to the face or the head of the opponent. Um, that would be unusual for, for a whistle not to happen on some of those plays. Of course, there's always going to be incidental contact. We all know that, you know, as, as, as officials at, at the top level, we know that the game is physical. Sometimes, you know, there's going to be incidental contact. That doesn't mean it's necessarily dirty. So we're making sure that when players target someone, you know, when they're trying to you know, take them out of the game by using illegal tactics and they're dirty, we want those things called straight away. So again, elbows, knees, that type of stuff, you know, on, on the rebound contest, it's okay if people lock up on the contest, as long as when that, when that ball comes down, that play dissolves, we're okay. But as soon as you've got someone locking that arm, clamping them and throwing them to the floor, that's the type of stuff that we want to clean up. And, and I think that's a good way to, another good way to explain, you know, FIBA want the game to be, they want to clean the game um, to get rid of the dirty stuff, mm. to get rid of those overt acts, which actually could cause some injury. But physicality with the body is good. That makes a lot of sense. Um, you also mentioned in these physical games, it's really important to have a high le level of awareness. What would you, what advice would you give for an official to increase their overall game and, and crew awareness? Yeah, I, I think the first place I would start is and this would make perfect sense as soon as I start, it's your scouting before the game. Mm. You've got to do your work. Your work's got to be done before the game in terms of knowing who your key players are, knowing who the scorers are. Even if it's your first game, say, at an international level, you know, knowing, knowing who the, who the, who the left-handed shooters are, who the right-handed shooters are. When you're watching the warm-up, looking at players' preferences, do they like to go left, like to go right, do they like to step back? When they're on the low block, do they, you know, did they, they curl high or they curl low? Those types of things. So some of that's done through your scouting, and then some of that's done through the warm up of, uh, at the start of a game as well. But once you're on the floor, you're looking for matchups. You're looking for, um, for the type of looking for the athletes on the floor. You know, are they all stretch fours, stretch fives? You know, with a couple of key, you know, key guards in there. I mean, so, as you know, the game has changed so much in the last five, six years, you've got players who are, you know, 6'10", can step outside and shoot the three easily. But also, they, they're, they're, they're just as much at home in the low block, you know, working the paint as well. So anytime there's a timeout, anytime there's a, there's a sub, how does that change my look on the floor? How does that change my, my, my matchups on the floor? Um, am I looking, when I'm coming down the floor, uh, you know, looking at the half-court set, how how is the defense set up? Is it just a zone? Is it you know is it is it a is it a loose man, a man on man type situation, or is it hand pressure defense everywhere? Or are they doing some old school stuff like you see from time to time? You know, box and one, and they've got one of their key defenders you know just tagging you know, the key player on the opposition as well. So all of those all of those keys and all of those those features to the game should influence how you're going to officiate the game. You know, does the defense play, you know, do they switch all or do they hedge and then and still make sure they keep their assignments? That type of stuff should really be, be a key signal to how you're going to officiate. And a, and a great example is a, a simple example is on ball screens. You know, if you've got a if you've set if someone, if the offense is setting the high on ball screen, is it 
Is it the big setting the high, high on ball screen? If so, um, who's guarding the big? And looking at the space behind where the on ball screen's being set. So if it's, if it's not the big setting the screen, is it, is it a guard on guard contest? So do you now have you know, two guards on, on the ball and two guards on the screen? That means that once we get around that screen, there's going to be an immediate defensive contest on the, on, on the floor. But when it's the big setting the screen, generally the defender will show and that gives you a different type of look as well. So your positioning can be different too. So if you're, if you're, if you're not alive to those things in terms of your scouting and then um, looking at who, who your matchups are, are, are on the floor, you're going to miss so much because you're not ready and you're always behind the play rather than being in front of the play. You mentioned a lot of great things about preparation and, you know, strategically getting yourself ready for the game by knowing the other teams. I just want you to draw the line when, or how do you kind of balance between going in the game and knowing kind of too much about what happened in the past and making sure that you don't just go out and recreate something that was, you were thinking about. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And that is something that, you know, when I'm talking to the, to the coaching staff of, of the clubs, you know, it's a, it's a key, it's a key thing for referees to keep in mind because, you know, the, the teams that want us to scout, they want us to know what the tendencies are of, of various players. But you also have to be really sure that you are not using that information to color your decision-making. If you're doing that, then you are not being fair to that player. So yes, be prepared, understand that certain players like to go right, like to go left, understand that certain players like to shoot in the mid-range J or they like to come off, you know, curl off the, uh, off the, the baseline flex cut and shoot that three-point and those type of things. Or some players, you know, like to act a little bit. We, we all know who they are. You don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to understand those, those players and their tendencies. But once you're on the floor, you're judging purely actions. If you're judging the action and your play calling is, is, is up to speed in the sense that you, know, you see the play all the way through from start, develop, finish, or beginning, middle, end, it doesn't really matter the terminology. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you see the play from the start, you see the, see the developed part of the play, and then you show that level of patience to let the play finish, then you'll, you should, that'll, that'll give you the best chance to to process the play all the way through so that you're judging the action and the impact of the play, not actually judging um, the player and what they have been known to do beforehand. Yeah, Mark Wunderlich, you know, mentioned something very similar, and, and this is something that we, we study, you know, start, develop, finish, decide. The longer you can look at a play, the more information you can gather, the better decision you can make for that, for that play. It's absolutely spot on, and, it, and, it's, and it's critical. I think that, you know, if you're looking at the toolkit of an, of an elite official, the, the elite official one who understands play calling from a start, develop, finish perspective and then assessing the impact of the play, you know, they're the ones who are most successful. You know, you, you, anyone can call a game relatively uh, successfully and accurately without even really considering the finish of the play. Because you can look at any play and slow motion or, or you can pause it and you can see contact and say, oh, there's my foul. But you know, does it really have an impact on the play? And if it doesn't, then you, know, you might be inadvertently strangling the play um, and you might be pulling, pulling the play up when there's a better opportunity that happens you know, further down, down, down the court. So there's a, few, there's a few things like that that you need to consider as an elite official. You know, when I'm evaluating officials, one of the first things I look at is not what they're calling, but what they're not calling. What do you think of that? Yeah. Interesting point because, uh, again, I agree with you. I actually measure as part of some of my performance measurements of my crew, of, of my team in the NBL, I actually, I actually tag and measure correct no calls. Where, where, I, where I look at the decision-making element of, of, of an official's performance um, and how many correct no calls did they make that were actually good for the game? You know, I, I'm not talking about you know, simple calls where there's a little bit of a bump on the hip, it gets around, I'm talking about good vertic verticality plays at the rim where the defenders, they're, they're legal, they jump vertic vertical, the offense you know, hits them in the air, 
there's contact and the contact's all legal. We see a great athletic play at the end. The offense puts the puts the puts the shot in. We come back to the floor, we're safe, off we go. You know, I look at those types of plays and I actually measure them to make sure the referees are rewarded for for those correct no calls. And 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 I, I refer to that in my in my performance matrix as um, decision making. Mm-hmm. You know, because you can you can make correct calls, you know, you can you can make incorrect calls, you can have incorrect no calls, which are just misses, but you can also you're also making decisions all the time on correct no calls as well around the floor. You know, did this contact impact the play? No, it didn't. You know, did this contact fit within the league directions? No, it didn't, so it's okay to play on. So I, I make sure those things are recognized in, in officials' performance as well. And um, when you're quantifying officials' correct uh, call percentage and you're watching it on film, is this something where you watch from multiple angles and you're like zooming in and, and or are you just watching from like the main angle of the TV broadcasts? What's your process like? Yeah, so, so, so three things uh, uh, initially. So I, I measure, measure three sets of performance. So accuracy, uh, efficiency, and decision-making. Uh, we, we can go back to them if, if you want uh, at some stage and talk about the detail. But I, I sit for every game, I, I sit at the moment in, the re, in our replay centre. Okay. So in the replay centre, I have access to nine angles on plays, potentially. Yeah, you, got sometimes your, you, can, you got all your info you need. Yeah, yeah, correct. So, but I, but in real time, we're always watching broadcast yeah. to get a feel for someone's performance. Now, if I need to use certain angles to look at a call, whether it's right or wrong, then I'll do that. But generally, you know, if I've got to look at three or four angles on a play to assess whether a call is right or wrong, it really does become a coaching opportunity for me. I think that's that's a that's a, a critical difference around how I'm assessing performance. Some things are, are, are definitely coaching opportunities. Some things are about assessment. You know, the, the, you, you've, you've, you've made this call. You know what, this call is actually not quite right for the game. You know, you look at these things and on the broadcast, you can see even on broadcast, it's not quite right. When you add these other angles in, you know, and if we're lucky, you sometimes get an angle that the official has. Um, you, know, you add that angle and you go, well, it's clearly wrong. So yes, we say that the call's wrong and then we go into coaching, but you know, there needs to be some acknowledgement in my mind that is the call correct or not? Uh, and then we go into the coaching aspect of, of, of the play. Well, the reason why I ask you that, obviously I know you have a lot of technology uh, at the NBL, but most of the officials listening you know, don't have all those camera angles. And there's a common phrase in the industry called film doesn't lie. And I just yeah. had to clarify that a little bit because if you're only watching one camera angle, there's a chance the film could lie because you could either be stacked or just not have an open angle on the contact. If you're looking at three, four different camera angles, then yes, I don't think film does lie. But I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, look, I think well, film is film is generally definitive when you've got the right information. Yeah. Um, again, if, you know, for me, if if I'm having to slow-mo plays from three or four different angles then then i got i just jump straight to a coaching point mm. you know the right or wrong doesn't really matter right now it's about how do we improve how do we improve this you know, for the future um if broadcast gives me a pretty good indication that it's it's right or wrong then generally when you go to other angles you know it, it'll the other angles will show you whether the call is right or wrong as well it's like when you uh, have to rewind to travel like 10 times and pause it like if you're going to rewind to travel 10 times it's probably something you should let go in real time what's your thoughts on yeah. that i i agree it's mm-hmm. when i'm when i'm uh when i'm reviewing a game for people and you know, we're, i'm doing the cut up in sports code um anything that requires me to review multiple times rather than it to be it being defined as a correct call or an incorrect call or incorrect no call or an or a correct no call it just goes to the review category and, you know, and I go back to the review category and I put some comments in there, you know, look at principles of, of the play and discuss. You mentioned something really interesting and it's one of the worst feelings I think we have as officials. It's when the game gets away from us, we get behind the game and it falls apart so quickly. What yeah. are some of the elements that you see which does cause a game to do that? And how do we get back uh, to being ahead of the game if possible? Yeah, I think, I think this this for me is it, it, you can make this really complex if you want to, and if we had 
three or four hours, we could talk about this and, and, and only talk about this topic. Mm. Uh, I think some of the some of the simple things that come that sort of come out at me and, and are really obvious are when you're when you're on the floor and you're looking you know, at at the half court set. Let, let's just start there. You often get caught because you're not really concentrating. You're not really focusing on your primary. So what's my primary? What am I supposed to be looking at here? Uh, what am, what is my responsibility? Am I on ball? Am I off ball? You know, where's the clock? Where's the game clock? Where's the shot clock? So the game often gets away from us because we, we get left behind with, uh, because we haven't focused on what, their, what my responsibility is at the time. So we, we've come down the floor and centre. You know, I'm, I'm on the weak side. Or, or, or I'm in the slot, depending on what you know, definition you use. You know, I'm sitting there and I've got really nothing to do right now because all the actions on the, on the strong side of the floor but if you then switch off, you're then going to miss any weak side cut, any weak side drive. You're going to miss what's on the shot clock. Um, but also, you're not ready for the action when the play does develop and heads down your, your side of split. And, then, and I, I've, I've sort of termed this, you know, you're then chasing the play or you're being rushed by the play. So it doesn't matter where you are on the floor, what position you are on the floor, if you've got nothing to do or, or minimal to do in your primary, you should then be looking for information in dual coverage or extended coverage, looking into the gaps of the floor and the space on the floor to find out what might happen next. Where, where, where are the matchups that are likely to come into, into my part of the floor? So, they're the types of things that when the game gets away from you, you start chasing that. And that's where the errors come from because you initially weren't ready. You've relaxed far too much. You, you weren't you know, in common, some common vernacular. People talk about an active mindset. You weren't active and looking for information to say, how am I going to be ready for the next play? Even though right now I don't have too much to do. And, and that happens quite, I, I, that happens quite regularly. And I see, I see errors in, in transition, particularly from uh, the center official, and some and sometimes from the new lead official, because they're too they're, they're too focused on getting to the new position on the floor rather than finding the information in, in transition that will best put them in the right position once we get down to the other end of the floor. So that's for me the best example I can give to you is that transition plays or where a lot of errors occur because the most en engaged official is the new trail. They've got the ball. They're chasing the ball up the floor. They're already engaged. But the center official is often not engaged at all and they're just staring into space. And the new lead official, they're working on getting themselves to the baseline, but they're forgetting about looking at the play and finding out, is the play coming down on the strong side? Is the play mm -hmm. coming down on the weak side? And that then that then indicates where I need to be on the floor once I get up to my setup and lead. So you find um, in these transition plays when lead is running parallel to the play, oftentimes they're calling across the paint with the closed look. Yeah, there's that. Um, there's also uh, let me try and paint this picture. You know, we we get let's start in the half court again. So we're in the half court. Um, the trail official, the current trail official, has got got the shooter. Shot goes up. So shot goes up. We're now in, we're in the trail officials in, in shot coverage. Shooter comes back down. We're safe. We're now in rebound coverage. So all three officials are in rebound coverage. The, the rebound has been secured. We're now in, we're now in, uh, in transition coverage. So each of, those, each of those moments of shooter coverage, rebound coverage, transition coverage should should tell you I've got to be looking in certain places around the floor. Where are my matchups? Where are my primary primary defenders? Where are my closest players who are going to impact the play? So the old trail is now the new lead. If the ball, if, if the rebound has happened right in front of right in front of the baseline, you know, I can probably get down the floor quite easily. But if the ball rebounds long and it's a turnover, I've got to make sure I find the offensive player. I've got to find my first primary defender. And I also want to find the secondary defenders 
who might challenge those plays at the rim as well. So once I'm in transition, I'm looking for some key things around the floor. Where's the ball? Where's the primary defender? Where's the secondary defenders? And where do I need to be to best referee this play? Now, if, if I'm ahead of the play, great. If I'm not ahead of the play, well, I need to work a little bit harder to make sure I get to the baseline before the players do. Appreciate you having, appreciate, excuse me. For incorrect call, edit. <laughs> Let's get some water as well, man. Mm -hmm. You're on fire right now, bro. I wanted to bring you on to talk about a lot of the things that we normally talk about, the pillars of officiating, but to get, you know, a different spin on it is great. Just talk to me a little bit more about your play calling philosophy. Yeah, so I think I'll talk about the play calling philosophy, especially from a, from a, um, a national league perspective, because not every official is going to referee you know, at, at the FIBA level on a regular basis. Some of us are lucky to do so, but some, some, some don't get there at all. Um, when you're in your, in your national program, whether you're refereeing the NBL or refereeing out of South America or you're refereeing EuroLeague or, or the BCL um, out of Europe as well or, or EuroCup, you have to make sure that whatever the league directions are, that you fall in line with them as quickly as possible. You know, you and I can sit here and we can talk philosophy for, you know, for three days straight. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we might agree on some things, we might disagree on some things, but when we're on the floor together, if our boss says, this is how we want the game called, then that's what we must do. So, so my, my first, my, my first point of emphasis for everybody would be play calling is derived from the league directions in particular. You know, league directions are not just you know, plucked out of the air. They're, there's research around it. You know, FIBA in particular do research and they look at how, uh, how certain types of fouls are impacting the flow of the game. And they put in, um, they put in methods or, or, or ways or call types to help improve those areas they want to improve. It's, it's exactly the same for national leagues as well. So play calling initially comes from there, but um, the, the, other, the other element of play calling for me that's really important is that, is that you're always looking for, for ways to clean the game. You're looking for ways to, to cover the game so that you've always got the best look. A really simple philosophy for that I, or a training technique for, for my guys is that on every given play, do you have the open look? If you don't, then you need to move. Now, the good thing is when you start to identify the, these types of things on play calling, if I don't have the open look, quite often you only need to take maybe one step to your left or one step to your right. Often that's enough. But the, but the, the, the play calling element to get to call plays correctly is driven, driven from do I have the open look? And if I don't, I need to make sure I have the open look on the play. Um, when I'm on lead, you know, do I have a good wire position on lead to get as much information as possible? Um, if I'm if I'm narrow, as you know, everything becomes too big too quickly. So I need to make sure that whenever that play is in the paint, I've got a wire position to get as much info on as possible on that play as well. Uh, there's there's other things too around how you have uh, dual coverage opportunities on plays as well. You know, there's high side, there's always a high side and low side to a play. And it doesn't matter where, where you put this, where you put the players on the floor, this principle will, will always ring true. If you've got action in the paint, the, the baseline official, that they've got the low side of the play quite often. But the center official and the trail official, they've got the elements of high side of the play. So the help D who was originally on the three-point shooter and they're now back in the paint, they may close down, they may reach and, and try, to, try to stop the player from getting to the paint with, with, the, with the dribble penetration and then the shot. So you can't, you can't forget about the high side of the play as well when you're officiating. It's more than just the primary defender. You're looking for the secondary defenders as well. Those elements should all help, help you with your play calling because it'll orient you and your mind to looking for this information around the floor. So if I'm in the slot, and we spoke about this offline, if I'm in the slot in center and the post play is opposite on the opposite block, 
Now it's not my my responsibility yet because lead has it, but as soon as that post play curls into the paint and curls away from lead, I need to switch on and be ready to help. Because for that for that for that there's a moment there where the lead official is stacked on the play, but the person with the open angle is the center official, and they can help with the high side of the play. So it's, so the sneaky guard decides to reach down and and hit the you know hit the the high hand of the of, of the post player so they can't gather the ball to shoot. That should be the, the center official should have the open angle on those types of plays. So play calling should really be driven through what am I looking at? How can I help with dual coverage? Where are my threats? You know, so where are my secondary defenders? But also make sure you never forget about what's in your primary as well. And the last play you, you mentioned was an example of um, proximity not always being primary there, right? Absolutely. I, that that phrase whoever whoever coined that phrase i think mark example, davis wants the props for that well let's let's all give mark davis a golf clap <laughs> because it's he's 100 correct you know and quite often uh quite often an official will have the open look who's the most unexpected official to have the open look on the play um and that's why i i think it's really good to encourage dual coverage opportunities uh, where, where they're legitimate dual coverage opportunities. I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about extending and you know calling out of the area too far, and, you know, which can sometimes um, ruin the confidence of your partner. I'm, I'm talking about paint plays on split, those types of things. You know, block charge plays uh, in transition that are on split, and the trail and, and center official can actually work with each other on those plays as well. Um, that that proximity primary element, I think, is an important thing to add. Um, I think it's an important sort of lens to put over over the over your view of the game, particularly at the elite level, because the players and coaches don't care if if, if the official on the baseline misses the the hands foul, or misses the foul on post action, and 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 they look at you and go, "Well, you can see that," and they go, "Well, it's not my primary." Can't say They're going to go. No, you can't say that at all. You can't if, if you start you start saying those things, you're going to lose credibility instantly. So good. Let's let's transition to um, you know your communication style when you were a an official and what you teach your referees now as far as you know communication, game management, and running the game. I think the first point to start with is that um, use your your own style and personality. Don't try and be something else. I think the moment you try to do something or maybe emulate someone else in the way they do things, it's just not, you know, when it's not natural, I think it then drives other unnatural behaviors as well in terms of how you communicate. You know, so for me, you know, I was, um, when I was on the floor, I was, um, I wasn't a big talker, um, but my communication was always um, direct and it was always uh, providing the information, but it was always casual as well. You know, I, I was very rarely was I ever, ever flustered or upset by stuff because I understood the context was players and coaches are just trying to win. Okay, sure, they're yelling at me right now, but they could be yelling at you, Paul, if you happen to be on the floor. So it doesn't really matter, you know, that they're yelling at me because they're yelling at the official. So I, I always tried to make sure that, that one, um, my communication style was was casual and, and easygoing where, where it needed to be. Um, if a player or coach was was yelling at me, um, sometimes it's good to let the player or coach let off steam. Yeah, but as we all know, there's a limit to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a limit to that type of behaviour. But a, a, a tactic that that I think works really well is that when a, when when a player or coach is arguing or upset about a play and they're hot. If they spike with their emotion, but come straight back down, that's a, that's a good sign that you can now communicate. Okay. If they if they spike with their behavior and stay up there and they're redlining, your response is now different. Right. But if you so if you're encouraging players to to have that emotion, then come straight back down. You get to the communication piece a little, a little bit sooner. So some of the stuff that I'm often trying to try to do on the floor, and I encourage my guys to do is that you know you're asking questions of the player to get an understanding of what's actually happening you know, and when you're listening to to the player or coach talk 
listen for understanding, don't listen to reply. You know, again, that's another maxim that, you know, many people use and it's really true. When you're listening to reply, you're often missing, missing the message that's, that's being given to you. If you listen to understand, you're better able to work your way through those, the edges and, and understand how I need to respond. So the other thing that I think is really important is that when it's just general, it's really high level stuff, that might be okay to have that conversation for a few seconds, but you're not going to resolve anything at all, particularly if the play is in motion. Um, so you want to get from the general to the, to the specific as quickly as possible. And you do that through, through questions. Or you push that back to the player or coach and say, I'm not sure I understand what you're telling me here. What's the question that you have? Now, that's enough of a bump for the player or coach to think about, okay, they're talking to me. They actually want me to ask a question. They should now come back with a question. If they don't come back with a question, well, then we know the conversation right now is just, they're just blowing off steam. They're not really looking for an engagement. So you can move on. So I would encourage everyone to, to think about getting from the general to the, to the specific very, very quickly. Um, anyone with a law background or policy background would understand why. When you look at um, any sort of official documents, policy documents, they often start off very general and then work their way down into be, to be very specific. So that's where that principle comes mm. from. Um, make sure you ask questions, make sure you, you get the player or coach to ask you a question so you understand what the issue is. Um, in hot games, when the game's in motion you know, and there's already play happening on the floor, I would be just telling the player and coach, I'm working right now. Uh, I'll get back to you when the time's right. Love it. But make sure you get back to them. Because if you don't, you're going to lose credibility. Um, my coaches here, uh, they're, one of their biggest, their biggest issues with, with, with the officials is that they're happy with the communication that generally goes on. They're, they're, they're unhappy when the referee says, I'll get back to you, but never come, never comes back. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and sorry to cut this episode short, but if you'd like to listen to this full length episode, as well as our entire catalog of new content, including 50 new episodes of our podcast, you can find it on the Patreon app or go to patreon.com backslash crown refs. Have a great day.